Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is July the 2nd, 2015, and this is episode 1602 of the Survival Podcast. And I've got a great one for you today. I know on Thursdays we're supposed to be moving to Jack doing the call-in shows, and we really are. There's no doubt about that, we really are. And we're going to do it, but it's going to be a while. Um... I'll just kind of tell you where I'm at right now. I have a vacation coming up next week. There will not be a Friday or a Thursday show next week. Um, I need a vacation. I am at the point where I will just put it that way one more time. I need a vacation. Actual vacation with my wife away from everything. Uh, I love meeting you guys on trips and stuff like that, but those aren't vacations. I've had a few of those this year, uh, and they actually make me have to do a lot more work. A vacation should make you do less work, at least for a while. Um, so I need that vacation, so that's coming. I had a car wreck. Um, I'm in a lot better shape than I was just a week ago. I, I really am. Um, I'm in a point now where some of the pains I have are probably pains I had anyway. It doesn't prevent me from sitting still, but for two weeks, it was everything I could do, guys, just to get on the air and make sure there was a show for you. Um, sitting down for an hour to record uh, was actually turning into three hours of time because I would have to stop every 15 minutes to get up for half an hour. Um, so we're through that, but we're still in the back end of it. And then I've had the remodel going on, which is now entering its ninth week, and I'm I'm ready to kill my contractor. I mean, I am ready to put him through a wall uh, at at said velocity sufficient to crush his blunt skull, if you know where that's from. And uh, so I'm just doing what I can to get through right now, and I hope that after you know seven years now and 1,600 plus episodes. That that's understood, and we will get back when I return from vacation to a standard schedule, the new standard schedule, which will be Mondays as feedback shows, um, probably Tuesday as a Jack Standalone show, Wednesday as an interview show, Thursday as the new Expert Council uh, uh, awesome show, and then Friday, or I'm sorry, Thursday is a is a call in show for me, and Friday as an Expert Council show. I think it's going to be a great schedule. I think it's an awesome thing that we've been able to evolve TSP into what it's become. But this is a transition, and I need a little time to get there, and I hope everybody will understand that, and I need some time away. It's hard. I just give you, as a, as a business owner that runs a business like I do, uh, where it is a daily show, and now you're going to leave for a week and a half, um, it's hard to do because you know you're losing momentum. And I just hope that the work we've done over the years is sufficient that you guys, when I do go away, um, are ready for me when I come back. And if you just miss the show, again, there's over 1,600 episodes, guys. Go listen to some of the other stuff. Um, there's some really cool stuff that we're going to be doing in the future as well. I have some great ideas for a show. And I'd like to float an idea for a show to do when I come back. I, I'm a big believer in something I call proactive apathy. Proactive apathy. And what I mean by proactive apathy is when you stop worrying about things like some idiot somewhere burned a flag. I mean, if it's not your flag, it's not somebody else's flag. That person bought a Chinese-made $3 American flag and burned it. They're an asshole. There's no doubt that they're an asshole. And, you know, if I'm standing in front of them when they do it, since I know they're trying to be an asshole, my instinct is to want to smack them 
really hard with like a frozen fish, something like a, a salmon, a very large salmon, frozen solid in the face. That's that's what I'd like to do. But in the end, it's their property. They can do what they want. And if I'm distracted by that, I'm not focusing on my own life. Or when you're being told that you're going to die because of some illness that's not going to kill you because somebody didn't get a, a, a vaccine or you know, you're told this is the most important election in the world, choose between status A and status B. When you start saying, you know what, regardless of how much I choose to interact with this, I'm going to stop believing it all. And I'm going to stop wasting time and energy on things that really I can't change. And I'm going to turn my back on all the things that the media and the government and the state and the oligarchs say I need to pay attention to. That's apathy towards them. okay? And apathy has a bad rap. A very bad rap. Apathy has this bad rap of being like, you know what? I just don't care, right? And I have a very high gaff factor. Give a F factor, right? Okay, my gaff is like negative 40 um, for a lot of things. But that doesn't mean I actually gaff everything. That means that I actually do care about the things that I do control that are important. So proactive apathy, sounding like an oxymoron, is actually saying I'm going to take all of the energy being wasted on things that do not affect me, and I'm going to just drop it. And I'm just going to say now all that energy, all that focus is available for me to build solutions for myself, my family, and my community, whether it's a business or a homestead or just really focusing on, yeah, I work in the system, but I'm going to manage my money really well and develop my own system of independence monetarily. Whatever it is for you, when you stop giving them your best and give you your, your best to yourself and your family, that's proactive apathy. So what I would like from you guys, and the best way to do that, to keep it all in one place with vacation coming and all, would be in this episode to go to 1602 and put it in the comments section. Because other people will see it, and it will spur conversation. I know a lot of you guys like to send me emails, but there's times where it's not the best, and there's things that it's not the best for. And I know some of you don't want to comment on the blog for whatever reason. You put a fake name in. No one knows who you are. I mean, I technically have a rule that if you don't put in a valid email address that your, your comment will be deleted, but I never enforce that rule unless I think you're a troll or a spammer. Um, so you can put in anything you want. I'm not going to... Share your email with anybody, even if you use the right email, and it's probably a good idea because if I have a question, I might email you and say, hey, man, will you clarify this or come back and say whatever you want to say. And the blog will tell you somebody else has responded to you too if you do that. But your email address will go nowhere. So if there's any reason that you don't want to do that, just throw in a, you know, any email, fake email you want, trash mail or something like that, uh, or use your real email with confidence. Uh, but give me your thoughts and ideas for things that we can do that are proactive apathy. And I'd like to do a show, one of the first shows when I get back, continuing the Insurgency series that we've started, that says, hey, these are all the types of things you can do to develop freedom in your own life. Somebody said on Facebook today that, well, like 80% of what you talk about is proactive apathy. But I'd like to take the approach of let's identify it. Let's identify what you can do. You know, On that note, what are we talking about today? We're talking about using and producing something called biochar today on the show. And I have Gloria Flora, who will be with us in just a little bit, uh, who is um, the founder and director of the U.S. Biochar Initiative, also known as USBI. And she's going to talk to us about biochar, some of the larger things it can do, but how to do it at a small scale and how to use it for yourself. How, why does that fit in with the concept of proactive apathy? Well, 
What it does is it improves fertility. We'll get into how and why, et cetera, today. But if you can take something like this, small scale, that means it can work in anything from a fairly large homestead like I maintain to your container gardens of herbs on your back porch and actually make more nutritious food for your family. I, I think that when I talk about a lot of the stuff, the homesteading type stuff, the growing your own food, the permaculture stuff, people don't get really how important that is. The food system that we have today is full of toxins. It's full of toxins. They're poisoning you. okay? And they're not poisoning you to poison you. They're poisoning you to make money, and they don't care that you're getting poisoned. But as a byproduct of poisoning you, they've built an entire pharmaceutical industry to maintain your illness at just a high enough level that you can maintain your working function at just enough high level so you can eat more of their shitty food so you can get just a little bit sicker and use a little bit more of their drugs. And they're taking your kids, they're taking your kids who you're feeding this toxic food to, and they're putting them on drugs so they will conform to sitting in a chair for eight hours a day, and they're telling you you're a bad parent if you don't do it. Okay? The thing is, unlike the next guy to be your president who won't do the square root of F all about that problem, there's some things you can do to at least mitigate, if not solve those problems. But the only way, the only way you will ever start to mitigate those problems is to have the time and energy to do it. And if your time and energy wasn't sucked into the vortex of bullshit soup that they serve you every day, you'd have at least a little more to do at least a little bit. And what will happen is you'll start dumping your baggage, dumping your baggage, dumping your baggage, dumping your baggage. And all of a sudden, that crappy car you're driving with those ball tires will still move. It'll move forward. It'll go somewhere. And then you'll start to make progress, and then you can buy new tires for it. And then you can trade up to a little bit better car. The next thing you know, you're hauling ass down the road in whatever vehicle you've ever wanted to have. But it all starts with little incremental steps. So that's what I hope this does for not everybody that listens today, but for some of you. Something you can do. Something you can do to start taking control back for yourself, your family, and your community. No one can do everything that we talk about. That's what we talk about so much, so you can pick and choose what works for you. I know it's long for an intro segment, but call a little bonus since I'll be going away next week for a week and a half. At this point, we do have to take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you and help make sure the show is for you five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor the day number one today, Chef Keith Snow. Chef Keith is an awesome guy. He's a member of our expert council, long-term sponsor of the show, and he just has an awesome website. If you get over to HarvestEating.com, you're going to find all kinds of great stuff. First, you can find the stuff that he sells, his organic teas, his spices, seasoning mixes, and other products. I use Chef Keith's spices and seasoning mixes on a daily basis, pretty much. Uh, if I'm not re reaching for uh, the northern Italian, I'm probably reaching for low and slow or Montana steak or the new prime rib stuff or the chicken curry. It's just all awesome. He also teaches you how to focus on the technique over the recipe and cooking, how to make cooking a life skill, how to cook seasonally and locally. He's got a lot of great videos on his website, a lot of great blog posts, a lot of great recipes, and he's got an awesome podcast. You can find it all at HarvestEating.com. And remember, Chef Keith is a member of our expert council. If you have a question about cooking, you get it into me, and we'll get you an answer for it on a Friday show. Chef Keith Snow at HarvestEating.com. Long-term sponsor, great partner, great fellow prepper, and just one of the most awesome guys you'll ever meet. Check out his website again today at HarvestEating.com. 
Sponsor of the day number two today is Backwoods Home Magazine, the easiest company that I've ever had to endorse ever in my entire career. Um, it's really easy to endorse a company when you can look back and say to yourself, I've been this company's customer for over 20 years. That's what Backwoods Home is to me. 1994, I became a subscriber to Backwoods Home. I didn't even start the Survival Podcast till 2008. I was their customer for all of those years. In the early years of the Survival Podcast, a lot of the information that I shared with you, a lot of the teaching that I did came right out of Backwoods Home Magazine. They're an incredible company. And hey, if you haven't been a, a customer that long, consider going back and checking out some of their anthologies. They have anthologies going back to the very first year of public at Backwoods Home. If you want to get a subscription and you're a new subscriber, they have a deal for you in the Member Support Brigade as well. Backwoods Home is an amazing publication. If they weren't, I wouldn't have been their customer this long. It's great today that I can work with people like Dave Duffy and John Silvera, Masada Yub, and Jackie Clay. Knowing that, you know, after reading them all those years, they're now part of what I do. It's just awesome. If you check out Backwoods Home, what you'll find is a publication, sort of kind of like Grit, Sort of kind of like Mother Earth News, with a lot more homesteading stuff in it, and with a libertarian flair. Check out BackwoodsHome.com today, and you'll see why I've been their customer for so very long. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode, the year 1602, because it's the episode 1602. I have for you today, Shakespeare Gets All the Babes, no kidding. I also have Dutch ships ramming Spanish galleys and pictures from Vietnam. And I have The Ethics of Boomtown. Everyone does it. I'm going to start out, I'm actually going to, the one I'm going to do for you is Dutch ships ramming the Spanish galleys, pictures from Vietnam, because I think it has a real modern lesson for us. So here we go, from the awesome Alex Shrugged, as always, at tspwiki.com, Dutch ships ramming Spanish galleys and pictures from Vietnam. Muskets at the ready, sails unfurled, wind from the stern quarter full. The Spanish galley grinds under the keel of the Dutch three-master and breaks in two. The men chained to their oars slip below the water, blood, bone, and cries of despair. The Spanish reinforcements are engaged before they can reach the English coast. Fifteen years from now, the artist Hendrik Cornelis Vroom and his son Cornels will paint the battle in oil on canvas. It is the first time that a battle at sea is so will feel so personal. The Dutch ship seems on a collision course with the viewer. It takes the breath away. My take by Alex Shrug. This is one magnificent picture of an event that really occurred in 1602. The 17th century was a violent place. They knew that, they knew that only too well, and artists could capture those feelings of triumph and ruin. During the war in Vietnam, we thought it was the pictures coming back of the violence of war that caused us to lose heart. But that can't be true. Our hearts were already lost. The pictures just confirmed it. Yeah, um, you know, if people actually saw war, there'd be less of it. If people, people don't see war today. They see the parts of war that you're designed to see. You always see the horrors done by the enemy and never the horrors done by your own side. War is kept far away, or when it's very close, you have no choice because it's on your back door. And this is how war has been managed by tyrants for time immortal. It really has. If we saw the horrors of war, we'd be less apt to call for war or to support war. Now, here's the thing. You have an illusion today. Whatever I talked about being controlled, you have an illusion today that we have better coverage of war than we've ever had any time in history. Vietnam was the war where they lost control of the imagery. 
The American people actually saw the truth, and even those that didn't want to admit it eventually had to admit it. The things were going on that didn't make any sense, that weren't going to help us be free, that weren't going to save us from the communists. There weren't. That, that, that was just. There was just killing and murder over a piece of land. That's all that was going on. Two sides, two sides, both believing they're right, killing and murdering over a piece of land. That's that's what the Vietnam conflict ended up being. A conflict that had been going on for decades before we ever got there, lost by the French and abandoned, and then we decided to pick up that nasty ball. And people saw it for what it was. And eventually, not only was the heart lost, but the the fight came out of the dog, and the dog said, I want to go home. Not because the dog couldn't win the fight, but because the dog realized there was no point to winning the fight at this point. The fight was not designed to be won. The handlers of the dog were selling tickets to the fight and wanted the fight to go on as long as possible and did all they could to keep both dogs in the fight. And our dog finally said, enough. That's Vietnam. You'll never hear that in school. You'll hear one side blame the other. Democrat blame Republican, etc. You'll never hear the truth. Because the truth doesn't aid anybody's agenda. It really doesn't. What we have today is we send reporters off to war with tightly controlled images. And when we get images of children with their faces blown off, what we've done now is taken a new tactic. Those who would dare show those imageries are anti-American and anti-patriotic. I would like to know, from anybody out there that wants to defend such a stance, when did it become anti-patriotic to speak the truth? My take by Jack Spierko. On to better things. Uh, real quick, before I bring our special guest on, if you want to support the show and the work we do, do consider joining the Members Support Brigade. Unlike a lot of people that ask you for money uh, to support a show, I don't say, hey, give me your money and I'll spend it. I mean, I will. That's part of what we do here. We, we make a living. I'm a capitalist. I, I make no apologies for it. But... Instead of just support the show, how about I get you discounts to over 60 different companies? I've got a new one coming to you that I will have added to the MSB this week called Ninja Prepper. Kind of cool, small business person right out of the audience. I'll be bringing you that discount to go with the 60-odd other discounts that are already there for stuff you're buying anyway. Uh, check it out. Go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members, and uh, you can sign up there. You can use uh, PayPal online. You can use check, cash, money order, etc. It's up to you. And, uh, again, I, I thank you to every single one of you who's ever been a member or will become a member in the future. You do enable what we do here, and you are why the show has been able to develop the way that it's developed over the last seven years and 1,600-plus episodes, guys. Thank you. Anyway, uh, next up, real quick, want to say this is going to be a little bit of a different episode. We've never talked about the subject at length before. I think it's a really interesting subject. It's not something I have a huge amount of knowledge in. I'm just the kind of guy that will get my hands on some of this stuff when I make a garden bed or a, a swale or something and add it in, and I know that it works. Uh, but we're going to talk to an expert today, someone that's dedicated their efforts to furthering biochar as one of the many quivers that, or arrows that we can put in our quiver uh, in the world of farming and sustainable agriculture and permaculture and all that great stuff. And with that, I want to say, hey, Gloria, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you here. We're here to talk uh, about biochar. I've already kind of let the audience know that. But what I always like to do with our guests before we get into the topic at hand is ask them, can you give us a little bit about your background and how you got to be doing what you're doing today? It kind of helps them connect with the guest and be a little bit more personal. So I don't imagine when you were like 12 in, in you know middle school, you were thinking, I'm going to grow up and make biochar. 
so, I didn't so, know about that. Yeah, yeah so kind of what was when your, I was twelve. What was your like educational professional background, and how did you end up? You know, what kind of wonky path got you to uh, do something crazy like you know be the founder of the U.S. Biochar Initiative? Okay, well, um, I went to to college at Penn State and studied landscape architecture, but I was extremely interested in large scale landscape architecture, which led me to public lands and in a, uh, eventually a career with the Forest Service. And I started the Forest Service as a landscape architect and, and went through uh, to become forest supervisor on a couple of different national forests. And that was last century. And I was uh, extremely interested in sustainability of public lands. And so after I left the Forest Service, I started a nonprofit called Sustainable Obtainable Solutions. And from there, I was working primarily in uh, climate change, large landscape conservation strategies, forest health, um, uh, looking at the sustainability of the communities, and that's plant, animal, and human communities that depend on public lands, and looking at their sustainability. So I um, discovered biochar about 2007, and when I learned about it, it was like, oh my gosh, biochar seems to just sit right in the middle of all of these things that I'm very interested in, soil health, forest health, um, etc. So I was waiting patiently for someone to start a, a U.S.-based biochar organization because the international biochar organization is just great, and, but it's got a real international flavor to it, and I didn't think that uh, things would pick up in the United States until people could actually like see themselves making and using biochar and see examples in the United States. So, make a long story short, um, I didn't see anyone starting the U.S. Biochar Initiative, so I did, and it's, it operates as a project of the of my nonprofit, Sustainable Obtainable Solutions. And it, on that note. Kind of going into this main subject now, what is biochar? I mean, a lot of people, I think, just say, well, it's just charcoal. Uh, is there different types well, of charcoal? Is you know, What exactly makes biochar biochar? Well, biochar is just charcoal, but it's charcoal with a purpose. It's charcoal made with the intent to put it back in the soil, to repopulate it with biology and nutrients, or to protect biology from heavy metals and toxins. So it can be used for a soil amendment, and it can be used for remediation purposes. And when it comes to the manufacturing of it, is it because it's being done for the purpose, do we make it any differently? You can make biochar a number of different ways, and yes, there are not all biochars are equal. Biochar is, is made in different ways depending on the end use. And principally, what's different about how you make it is how how hot the the uh, oven environment is or the heating environment is, how much oxygen is present, and that affects the surface area, the porosity, um, a number of other things, the cation exchange capacity. So all those things react differently depending on how you make your charcoal. So. Um, well, that makes sense. I mean, what, what I'm kind of getting at is, like, I've seen people do something, you know, inherently crazy, like take a uh, a bag of uh, lump charcoal, which is made from whole wood, and smack it with a bat a few times and dump it in soil, and that uh, seems to not be a bad idea, really, but it could be better. But if you did that with, like, um, like Kingsford briquettes, right, then you've got a problem. 
You've got a real problem. Yeah, that is not the the kind of charcoal we're talking about. That's grilling charcoal, and frequently it's been treated or has other chemical additives to it to make it either stick together, burn longer, ignite faster. There's all these different things that are done to charcoal that's, that's made with the intention of grilling. And it's also very hard charcoal, and it's not necessarily what you want to use. Um, and, and so stick to straight, clean carbon made from your fibrous biomass, so you've got a good, clean charcoal that you can put in the soil. You you can't make biochar from municipal solid waste. You can make a charcoal-like material from municipal solid waste, but it has too many other chemicals and additives and, and um, unknowns in it that you definitely do not want to put that in your soil. So you need to start with clean feedstock to get clean biochar. Can we talk about how biochar actually makes soils more productive? I think there's probably a lot of confusion. People look at it as sort of a, I guess, more like a fertilizer, and that's really, it definitely increases fertility. There's no doubt about that. But it's not in the way that, let's say, by adding a, 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 a high nitrogen organic uh, fertilizer would. It's a, it's a totally different mechanism that's going on. It's much more Absolutely. regenerative and long-term. So can you kind of think about what it actually does? Biochar in soils. Biochar functions as a soil wreath, essentially. The, frame, the structure of biochar and uh, charcoal is very interesting in that it's extremely porous. The, there's a huge amount of surface area. One square centimeter of biochar may have thousands of square yards of surface area. So the surface area is extremely important, along with the porosity. The porosity um, allows it creates habitat for microbes, for bacteria, for fungi. So you have this great little place for them to hang out. But there's also things going on chemically and, and electromagnetically on the surface of the char. And that is that there is what's called a, a, cat, a negative cation exchange. And if we remember from high school science, negative attracts positive. Well, our, the nutrients that are available in the soils, nitrogen, phosphorus, just to name a couple, have a positive charge. When they are, they, they are near the biochar particles, they are attracted to the biochar. So biochar actually attracts nutrients. It also attracts water. And it can also prevent the off-gassing of nitrous oxide and carbon dioxide out of soils, redu reducing that off-gassing by 80% or more. So we've got a climate benefit as well as helping the soil. So the, the biochar, which lasts hundreds to thousands of years in the soil, actually acts like an attractor for nutrients and water, and, and it holds them with a weak covalent bond, which makes it perfectly makes plants perfectly able to pull the, the nutrients and water from the char with root hairs, but it doesn't um, it doesn't allow the, the nutrients to say just run off, which is another problem with farmlands and agricultural lands is that when fertilizer is applied, it frequently off gases or is carried off. In, in water and ends up in our drainages, which adds a whole new set of problems to our environment. Yeah, definitely. I mean, everything we do with, with permaculture when we look at earthworks is about slowing, seeping, and infiltrating. 
So mm-hmm. we want to slow down water. We want to infiltrate water. We want to infiltrate. Uh, we want to want to seep water in and infiltrate it in, and then as it continues to move through the system, that slows it down. And Absolutely. What this does is subterranean puts another another thing that delays the entropy, the sink of the nutrient, the water, everything that's moving through the system, because nothing's static in life. Everything is always moving toward entropy. So what we're actually doing with biochar is yet another component that says, let's, let's slow that energy down a little bit more. And then the microbe thing, I think, is something many people don't get, like the magic of this stuff is when you look at it under a microscope and oh, yeah. kind of alluded to it, but this tiny amount might have a kilometer of surface area, a kilometer. Like to get that in your brain, you have to shrink your mind down to like microbe size. So it's like we're putting all these houses in for all of these Absolutely. organisms and we're adding till. So we got air. So now we have houses for aerobic versus anaerobic organisms. Perfect. Yes. Yep, you you you've got it, Jack. You know, stop, drop, and store. Yep. And then then create the habitat for those microorganisms that that are really the workhorses in soil. And so these so the biochar forms like condos for these yep. uh, microorganisms. And the root hairs absolutely love biochar. The root hairs will wrap around the char, they, the char particle. They know that, that their friends are in there and they have trade goods. You know, the, the microbes have showed up with the, the, the nutrients and the minerals that the plant desires and the plant has the sugars and the carbohydrates that it will trade with the microbes for those nutrients. So it's a little trading post in the soil and, uh, and the plants absolutely adore it. Yeah, because I mean, the people always fret over the th- the big three, NPK, right? Well, there's in just about any soil, no matter how bad you think it is, there's enough in there for everybody. But we have to be able to get it, mm-hmm. and we have to continue the cycles that allow it to be accessed and and fixed by nitrogen fixers and things like that. And it's all about that biology, because you're right, it's a, it's an it's an exudate exchange. That plant says, here's a little sugar, here's a little, mm-hmm. little sugar and fat, it's a little cake. And then that microbe goes, well, thank you. But that plant knows that by putting out this particular exudate, that certain particular microbes will come. And there's an intrinsic intelligence there that we are only be- beginning to understand, I think. In oh, science, yeah. That that plant actually has that intrinsic intelligence. And when it needs something different, it'll actually put out a slightly different exudate that attracts a slightly different organism. And that, it, to me, that- is miraculous. Well, it is. You know, I mean, the the communication between living organisms is would blow our minds if we would would pause to even consider um, all the communication that's going on, particularly in the soil. I mean, that's hmm. it's it's pretty wild. So, so, where did this all get discovered from? Like, you know, I mean, I mean, obviously, the first person ever looked at and saw charcoal and something growing there went, Ugh, that might work. But in modern terms, the way we're using it today, where where did this kind of get? Get legs. Well, well, we have to we have to roll back quite a quite a long ways. Um, the modern concept and use of biochar was actually discovered um, first in about the 50s. Um, a soil scientist in Brazil started to investigate why there were these dark pockets of soil called terra soils scattered throughout the Amazon, and the, these were noteworthy soils. They were sometimes six feet deep. Um, very, very black, extremely different than the, the bright orange coppery color typical in jungle soils, which indicate very higher 
level of iron oxides, usually meaning very few nutrients and, you know, having been, been washed out by, by a lot of rain. But, um, so, anyhow, as people started to look more and more at this soil, they said, well, these are anomalies. These are just pockets, you know, randomly um, scattered throughout the jungle, which didn't really make much sense until soil scientists started talking with anthropologists. And then, as described in the book 1491, what was really going on were the Indians who lived there were putting charcoal into the soil on purpose because they knew that they could grow food better when they did that. And the anthropologists working with the soil scientists were able to to string together all these little pockets and pods of dark soil were actually along ancient travel routes and particularly surrounding areas that would be very popular for settlement, such as the, as the, um, the junction of two rivers or something like that. And so when when the soil then was examined more closely, yes, there were chunks of charcoal in it, there were pottery shards, there were all kinds of things indicative that it was actually a soil that was created by humans or augmented and enhanced by humans. And so, uh, interestingly, my soil scientist friends tell me that when they were in university, they were told not to consider the black component of soil because it was inert and didn't do anything mm. to really contribute to the soil, uh, which is pretty hilarious because when we think of the soils in the Midwestern United States as deep, rich, some of the best soils that we have in the United States, deep, rich, and black. And they're black because they have gone through millennia of grass fires. And don't don't you so think it's odd that somebody would say that? Because I think in human beings there's this intrinsic knowledge as well that when you look at black soil, you know that's good. Like It's good you, soil, yeah. If, if anybody that's ever gardened, if you take up nice, tilthy dark, rich, black to dark, dark brown soil and show it to them. You know what you hear them go? Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, yeah, like immediately. It was just like, just like a good-looking yeah. steak. You know, like, oh, that's good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, really. And that's and it's carbon. It's carbon in the soil, and that's what makes the soils richer. When they're, when they're black, they've got that carbon component in it. And so um, not that we're trying to get all soils to black, but... Uh, darker soils are good, and so. But you know, Jack, before we we uh, uh, get too far into or get away from biochar and soils, I want to to um, encourage your listeners to really pay attention to you really do some research, and they can go to the International Biochar Initiative website or the U.S. Biochar Initiative website and get started there with some resources and links. Because some people make the mistake of taking um, woody material, creating charcoal from it, and assuming that all is well and just going out and pitching it in their garden. That's not a good idea because you really need, you need to really assess what your biochar is all about. And you want to look at the pH and, um, and its ability to absorb water because you can cook it at such a high temperature that it actually is hydrophobic. Uh, for a, a, a period of time until the surface is oxidized. So there's a number of different, you know, nuances about biochar that what we do is urge people just, if you're making homemade biochar, put it in your compost pile first. 
because A, it gets exposed to air, the surfaces oxidize, which makes them more receptive, and B, it gets charged. And charged means that it starts to pick up nutrients um, from the, the compost. And if you put plain, uncharged biochar on soils that are already pretty poor, you may actually see a decline in productivity for a year or two while the biochar is collecting those nutrients. Mm. Mm. And so you really want it to be charged first. Now, if you don't have a compost pile, you can put it in a bucket and you can pee on it. Urine is a great fertilizer, and you, so you're capturing all that great, those great nutrients. Um, and you'll know when enough is enough because as soon as you start to detect any smell, it's plenty charged. <laughs> you can throw it into your uh, chicken coop. The biochar with chicken litter is fabulous. The, the chickens like to eat it. It makes them healthier because there's a whole subject line on, on biochar and livestock here we can get into. But it makes them healthier. It reduces the odor very significantly in your, in your chicken coop. My chicken coop barely smells at all. And, and that's because I, I mix biochar in the chicken litter. And the biochar is getting charged, ammonia, nitrates. All those things that make your chicken coop stink are actually pretty good for the soil. So you want to capture them and not just let them dissipate. So then you can use your, your uh, chicken litter as you would normally, whether you compost it or top dress with it, whatever you do. So a couple of different ways you can charge your biochar. You can actually put a... Uh, a, a fertilizer on it. You can make a weak, weak, weak fish emulsion uh, solution and pour it over your char. Just anything to give it I that extra little bit. Combining it with vermicomposting would be good. Uh, Perfect. Inoculate yep. it with a compost tea, humic acid mm-hmm. compost tea. I mm-hmm. mean, all of those things are going to have a, a positive effect. It's it's the case that I think that what happens is we as, as as human beings have got into this like microwave mentality. Like you have this one thing and then you do that and then everything works. And it's always interactions. So if we mm-hmm. break down organic matter, we get compost, and that seems like a good thing. But if all I do is take tall grass and cut it a few times a year and leave it lay there, ninety percent of what's good about it goes up into the air. I, I sequence mm-hmm. nothing. I, it all oxidizes. If I if I make sure that it comes into soil contact and it becomes moist and damp and inoculated with fungi and bacteria, it has one form of breakdown. If I put it through a ruminant before that happens, it's even better. And, and, and biochar is no different than all of these things. We're taking something that would otherwise have just evaporated into the atmosphere and we're, we're, mm-hmm. we're putting it into a more permanent form, but it has to get into interaction with other things to do what it's capable of because none of this stuff is the, the magic pill all by itself it's all about symbiotics. Absolutely. Absolutely. You nailed it. So what kind of feedstock can we use then? Because you mentioned like, you know, like a lot of cooking charcoal is made from oak. And it's good cooking charcoal. There's nothing wrong with it. But it may not be the best feedstock for the type of things we're talking about today. Yeah. Well, actually, hardwood um, char is is a very good char. It's very recalcitrant. It will stay in the soil for a long time. It it is, doesn't act that much differently. Um, it it really depends on how it's made. That that has a little bit more influence over it than the feedstock itself. But let's talk feedstocks. First of all, you know I I live in the West and have uh, lots of trees, and so being in a forest environment, I have a lot of slash. I have a lot of forest debris that um, needs to be picked up to reduce wildfire um, propensity. And so that, that provides 
a real ready source if you live in near forested areas. However, even if you live in cities, urban wood waste abounds. The amount of uh, yard clippings and trimmings and street tree trimmings and street tree removal creates a tremendous amount of urban wood waste. And we end up with actually more urban wood waste annually than the national forests produce through their timber sale and and, uh, restoration activities. So huge source there. But it doesn't have to be woody necessarily. It can be agricultural residues. It can be corn stover. It can be any kind of woody debris that you would not otherwise compost. And composters were very suspicious of biochar when we first came into 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 notice, and that in that we would be they were afraid that we would be taking the feedstocks that they wanted to compost mm. and mm. using them for biochar. But the two are very separate. You know, the kind of feedstock that you want, the the things that you wouldn't put in your compost pile because they just don't break down fast enough are the kinds of things that you want to make char out of. So you can use quite a few different things. You can you can use clean construction waste. Do be careful because some states have rules about burning construction waste, uh, and they have that because people tend to burn things that shouldn't be burned and, and put into the atmosphere. But any kind of, of clean construction waste, um, industrial waste, organic residues uh, from food processing, like nutshells, uh, seeds, Anything again that's that's hard, even even uh, manure can be made into biochar, but we always urge the highest and best use first, and say biochar is the last thing that you should make with your waste because there's probably higher and better uses for it, but if the last the if if you've exhausted all other uses or potential uses, then sure, turn it into char because what the char is going to do is capture and hold at least 50% of the carbon that's in the original material. And as you were alluding to, if you just you know, cut, cut tall grass and let it lay on the ground, it's going to be releasing its carbon dioxide and, or releasing its carbon in the form of carbon dioxide and other nutrients in gaseous forms. And so um, by, by charring it, we're at least hanging on to 50% of that carbon and putting that back in the soil. And from a climate change perspective, this is actually a form of carbon sequestration. And it qualifies as carbon sequestration because we know it's going to be there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. I mean, we're clearly seeing carbon in the um, terra preta soils in the Amazon that's dating to at least 2,500 years old. And we know it's it's been in there a lot longer than that. So... Um, you know, we're talking about a way to actually take carbon out of the active cycle and put it into the inactive cycle. The active cycle is what we and plants and all living things on the surface of the earth are part of. You know, we we give off carbon dioxide, we take in oxygen, plants give off oxygen, they give off carbon dioxide when we die, we all give off that, we all return our carbon to the active cycle. The inactive cycle is where the fossil fuels are. And we have gotten very clever and we've gone into the Earth's crust, we've pulled out the the 
um, carboniferous materials in there, the fossil fuels, and we've burned them. We've released that carbon that was sequestered in the Earth's crust into the atmosphere, into the active cycle. So essentially we've overwhelmed the active cycle with a whole lot more carbon than it was set up to handle. And so there are very, very few things that we can do that actually put carbon back into the inactive cycle. And that's one of the things that biochar can do for us. Well, and I think there's a, an issue there, too, that gets to the heart of, like, not starving to death. So we've mm-hmm. not just taken carbon out of the earth from the form of coal, let's say, or oil. We've taken a lot of carbon out of our soils. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and we've also exported a lot of it from bad management into the oceans. So mm-hmm. to make the soil feed us again without having these constant inputs – that carbon needs to be part of that component of the carbon cycle in the soil, and we've got to get it in there somehow. So regardless mm-hmm. of your concerns on, on, on pollution uh, from the, the CO2 standpoint, which, frankly, we won't go there, um, I, I, I think that we're, we're doing tremendous damage to our, to our, our, our soil. And mm-hmm. I think that those two issues are great when they fit together the right way, but on the other hand, there's this whole segment of society that says, well, I'm not worried about that. Well, I think we all need to worry about what we're going to eat next. Absolutely. And you know, the, the, the carbon piece, you know, if, if, uh, if that's of concern to you, it's good news. If it's not of concern to you, it doesn't matter. Yeah, because exactly. That's my point. <laughs> really, what, what biochar is doing is improving our food security. It's improving the soils, and that's where it all starts and it all comes from. So... You know, that's that's a very, very exciting opportunity because any of us can do it. What what other uses do we have for biochar besides amending soil? Um, remediation. Oh, and you know before we before we mm. leave amending soil, I just wanted to speak briefly about biochar and livestock. Um, actually if you include one percent by volume of biochar into feed uh, like for cattle you can reduce their methane emissions by 50%. And it makes them a whole lot healthier. You need less antibiotics. And I have had people tell me that when they feed their cows char and they put biochar in in bedding, that they reduce their fly population as well. That makes sense. I mean, you're always, biochar is charcoal and Mm -hmm. charcoal is a filter. Mm-hmm. And it can take. Uh, I mean, that's why we use it in something is is critical when it comes to controlling an environment as a uh, an aquarium. Mm-hmm. We run aquarium Absolutely. filters through charcoal, so we take out gases and, and toxins and stuff and, and sequester them into the charcoal. So if you can do that with ammonia in a fish tank, why can't you do it with uh, methane from a cow? Uh, Absolutely, which should reduce odor, which should reduce the attraction of flies, and at least some level and. Any level is good when you're dealing with flies in the spring. And also absorb, absorb toxins. Um, biochar is very good at absorbing toxins and heavy metals. And so running biochar through your cattle or even through yourself you know, can, can really clean out the system. And, mm. and not in a, a negative way. I'm not talking no, about I'm surging. You know, I'm yeah. talking about actually picking up on the, the, uh, the microscopic level, picking up these, these um, elements that aren't, aren't healthy for you and pulling them out and getting rid of them. 
So, you know, biochar is used in remediation. It's a fantastic remediator. Because it has a high pH, it's also very effective in acid mine reclamation because it, it um, raises the pH. And as you know, some acid mine drainage is, is uh, at, at pH of 2. And biochars can have pHs um, up into 8, 9, 10 and higher. So, wow. So, well, you got me thinking here with the the livestock thing, so I did a little Google foo while you were working there because I run primarily a duck based operation, and mm-hmm. there's been research done here. I'm reading in in, uh, in Africa um, where feed was added at a rate at this point zero point four to point six percent biochar into poultry feed with uh, both ducks and chickens, and resulted in improving the growth in young animals by an average of seventeen percent. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. pretty impressive when you're trying to make a living off poultry. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's very impressive. And, I, you know, I'm telling you, there, I, I use it with my, um, I have a, a lot of poultry. I do not have ducks. I have geese, turkeys, chickens. Um, and they seem to do much better when I have biochar in their environment, in their food. It's just I just have it around. And we're not and, talking about a lot either. I mean, if you're looking at less than no. 1%, if you're feeding, you know, I feed about 30 pounds a day, a quarter pound per duck. So mm-hmm. you're 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 talking a, a, a very small amount uh, oh, yeah. based on that. Mm-hmm. Less than, yeah, cool. Yeah. You, so, you, go ahead. Remedi- you know, we, we were talking about remediation, I think, and I, I went back to the, the, the poultry and the cattle. But um, uh, right now, biochar is being used fairly extensively in a number of cities as they're working with stormwater remediation, um, capturing stormwater, which you know is just a, a can be a, a toxic soup, you know, after running over all of these uh, exposed surfaces in in an um, urban environment, in particular, uh, and uh, over highways where tires are depositing heavy metals and toxins every day. Capturing all of that and running it through biochar-based swales um, allows the the, uh, the stormwater to be much much cleaner when it is put back into um, live waterways. We've got a couple of experiments going on. One over at the uh, port of Port Towns in Washington, where we put a filtration system on some old industrial buildings that were. Um, leaching a lot of zinc and copper into the water mm. and zinc and copper is highly toxic to aquatic life particularly fish and we with these biochar filters we were able to pick up 99% of the zinc and 97 to 99% of the copper wow so you know grabbing those nasty things that we don't want to get into other areas in our environment and and holding them in biochar is a really smart way to go. Well, and it, that's a little bit personal for me. I come from cold country in Pennsylvania, and I've seen a lot of damage from coal beyond the the coal itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, sulfur oxidizing groundwater, but another thing that I've seen is zinc. There's a lot of the coal deposits that are near zinc deposits, and there are places where over the years, this is when I was a kid, and they've done better at trying to remediate some of this, but for years no one did anything. And it, it mm-hmm. looked like... The trees were burning slowly, just like almost like fire blight on an apple, but totally consumed. 
and it would just advance every year, every year, every year. And what it was was these huge levels of zinc moving in that cycle through the soil downhill. And you would you would just start at the top of wherever the problem was, oh, and you man. would just watch a forest chemical. It was a chemical burn, basically, oh, from zinc. heartbreaking. And it is. And it's so, you know, if, if charcoal can help fix that, um, there's a lot of stuff that had to be done in that area that required more than just charcoal. But there's still these mm -hmm. places where it needs to be, now it needs to be cleaned up. Because what you had to do first is, well, the faucet's on. And it's leaking, so we got to fix the faucet and shut it off. But now we got to clean up the mess. Yeah, what's it, left? Mm -hmm. It seems like there's a lot of mess that could be cleaned up with with this type of thing. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty phenomenal. It, it um, it's being used in uh, saltwater estuaries that have um, lost their productivity because of of chemicals and other inputs, high salt concentrations. And uh, we're doing some remediation work with biochar in California, on the California coast. Um, I, I, you know, the, I, I'd like to, to um, say a few words about biomass because biomass is your feedstock. Mm -hmm. And there is a, there's, um, there's a, a, a contingent of folks who are very, very opposed to using biomass for energy or biomass to any other kind of product because they fear our, you know, our typical reaction, like, oh, if if um, if this is good, then let's like multiply it times a thousand, and uh, you know, and repeat it nonstop. Mm -hmm. And so people are very concerned that that biomass will be overused, and they have a right to be concerned about that, because if you look at biomass from a a strictly um, human utilization standpoint we we say that it's any carbon based material which when sufficiently dry can be thermally converted to energy and other byproducts okay that is a definition of biomass but nature has a completely different definition and in nature biomass is a complex structure of nutrients moisture temperature regulators it provides food shelter homes carbon sequestration all kinds of things that biomass is already doing for us. So people are very concerned. Well, why would you take this biomass that's already doing all these great functions, remove it from where it's functioning, and then turn it into charcoal? Well, they're right. We don't want to remove all the biomass. Or what we want to do is take the excess biomass, and that can be excess in an agricultural field, excess in a forest. And we already know from science and research how much biomass really needs to be present, how many tons per acre. And so if we honor that and leave that many tons per acre on the soil where it's already doing all these wonderful things by itself without our intervention, then that's perfect. That's a perfect solution because we leave what, what nature needs, but we take the excess. And then we, we can take the excess and convert that to biochar. Yeah, I agree. And I think there's also a point like, so what's the alternative? Whenever somebody says we shouldn't do something, my 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 response is let's let's examine the alternative. So examining the alternative on my property, um, while it's still a young property, I've only been on management on it for two and a half years now. There's over 400 fruit trees planted here. Not much pruning to do at this point. It's pruning by hand and a couple little branches and throw them on the ground and, and let the ducks crap on them and fine. But in five years, I'll be pruning with saws and chainsaws and things like that to manage all these mm -hmm. trees. 
Okay, yeah, now, mm-hmm. I can burn so much of that. I can use it as smoking wood, whatever, but I still got this surplus of it. Some of that can go to the ground and be taken care of by fungi, but there's still a surplus of it. So I have to do something with it. There's actually going to be so much of a surplus. If I don't do something with it, it's actually inconvenient. It's in the way. So I can right. use more it's a, it's energy. Problem. Right. I can use more energy than its value to move it somewhere, or mm-hmm. I can put it through a process, whether it's you know um, a biochar process or something else, to actually make it something that makes the land not sustainable but actually regenerative. Mm-hmm. So. If you say, well, okay, well, then what are you going to do with all? Well, one thing I can do is I can rent this big, horrible machine that makes a terrible sound called a shredder. I can spend Mm -hmm. lots of money to rent, and I can shove it through there so that it's in a a form that will actually break down in some reasonable period of time and not be a big mess for me. Or Mm -hmm. I can just use heat to transform it into something like biochar so that it can go into the soil. And by the way, it came from here in the first place. Uh-huh, and that's what I always recommend, and I know that, that it's not, um, you know, I don't think there's science necessarily that would substantiate this um, at the moment, but my feeling is that you use the biomass as close to its point of generation as possible, because I think that the, that if not microscopically or at a cellular level, at an energetic level, I think that that biomass is the best biomass to convert to biochar for your soils right there. Sure, and it's also harvested what's here. That means mm -hmm. it's... Well, and you're not doing something extra. You know, you're not going out specifically to collect biomass. You know, you're generating it as a, a part of managing your property. And so as a part of managing your property, then you have, as you say, um, and certainly will in the future, a very large pile of biomass that suddenly is not a, a it's suddenly, it's a problem, it, it, meaning that you have to do something additional with it. Um, but the problem is the solution, as they say in permaculture. And so suddenly that becomes a perfect feedstock. And there are ways to to burn piles of brush and slash and prunings that minimize smoke and maximize char. Hmm. And we're really excited about this. We in the biochar community have been experimenting with this for a few years. And essentially, the the key to the pile is that there is a, a good um, airflow in there, about 50% airspace by, by, the, um, by size of the pile, and you top light it. Okay, so it burns you, from down, it, above yes, down. And, and no smoke. If you top light it and you have a, a, a well-constructed pile, you top light it, it heats the material underneath the, the flame, which releases the gases, which are what actually burns. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not the structure of the wood that actually burns. It's the gases that come out of it that, that burn. And so you're forcing the gases out. But in if you think about it in, in the way we traditionally do it, we bottom light. It heats the material above the flames, which releases the gases, which are in the form of smoke and, and clear gases mm-hmm. that go out the top of the pile. That's fuel. We're losing fuel when we do that besides adding those, those uh, so, yeah, particulates about, and things. Let's talk about exactly how to do this because this is great. Yeah. Because I've always thought about, and there's some very efficient ways, I think, to do biochar 
with like kilns, furnace type arrangements and all. But mm-hmm. now you're talking about just basically a just sustainable a version of slash and burn. Let's take all the refuse, let's put mm-hmm. it in place, set it on fire, and when it's done, let's use it. Well, let's charge it up and use it. Mm-hmm. So how do we do that? Okay, so you create your pile. You're, you've got your materials. Um, if they're if they're all very small and even, um, that's going to be a little more challenging because it, just like you know, if you're putting gravel for a, a drainage, you want what's called a well graded mix. Mm-hmm. You want little and big and combos. Well, that's that's helpful in the, in these um, in these biochar piles. Um, you don't want to get your materials too large because that will, um, if you have a large differentiation in the size of your materials, some will, the smaller stuff will go to ash and that heavier stuff will not be sufficiently charred to even call it charcoal. So what you want to do is um, keep a, a bit of variation in the size but not, not wildly varied. You make a, a somewhat pyramidal shaped pile. Um, Try not to have a lot of things sticking out of it um, because those will smoke. If they're if they're away from the flame some distance, those will start to smoke. So you want a, a, a fairly even-sided pyramidal pile, uh, a fair amount of air volume, about 50%, and then you put a lot of fine material on the top, stuff that will burn quickly, and, and uh, this is to get the heat started and so you make a nice little little fire on top uh, or a nice little pile of fine material on top you light that and again in the combustion process we're burning gases think about a match you know when you look at at the flames it's not it doesn't eat up the match the the uh, you know a wooden match the match is still there the match head and it's getting charred but there's flame. What's the flame about? Well, the flame is the gases that have come off the, the matchstick. And you had your phosphorus on the end as, a, as a, a fast, high heat to start the process. That's very much how that fi- pile of fine materials on top of your slash pile functions. It's the phosphorus. It's the match head. You get that head lit, and then it starts to heat the rest of the material and it dries off the gases and the gases are sucked into the flames and burned. And just like, you know, a, um, a lot of modern wood stoves have the capability of capturing their gases and circulating them back in, in for, for a second burning, if you will. That gives you more fuel, um, it provides more heat, and it captures all that stuff um, before it gets out into the atmosphere. So... So your pile is now happily burning and you're being very smug because you're not seeing any smoke and you're mm-hmm. giggling to yourself because other people don't see you burning because you're, <laughs> you're not creating smoke. And, um, and so um, as it starts to, to um, burn down and you're, you're seeing charcoal forming, you take a rake and you start to pull that charcoal out. You, or, ah. uh, spreading it is a way of cooling it. You can also, if you're in an area where there is a hose handy, or you can take a, um, if you have been able to bring water with you to wherever it is that you're burning, you can start sprinkling it on the char, and that cools it down even faster. And and if the char is sitting there and it turns white, that that white means that's going to ash. So you're losing that carbon component that you want to keep. So you really don't want to see it go to white. 
so you spread it out or and you spray it more and so you and then you push the unburned or partially burned materials back into the 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 heat of the fire and so you keep your fire going very nicely but you're you're harvesting the char as you go that's the way to maximize Hmm. Your char production out of a pile. So we keep putting we keep, it back in until we finally get to a point where we're like, okay, that that all that's now coming out, and and we're not that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, and and flames will go out. You'll see this like if you're using a cone kiln, um, which is just a simple. Um, it's a, think of a an ice a cream cone with a pointy end on it. Think of it cut off kind of halfway up, and and that that cone that's left, the top uh, is is. Um, where you put your materials, and again, you're trying to minimize the amount of oxygen that's coming into the material um, because you don't want if you if you shoot in a lot of oxygen, then it's going to um, go to ash much more quickly. So you want kind of a controlled burn, and so like in a in a cone kiln, um, when you're um, when you're getting down to the, where you've just about put turned the whole thing to charcoal, it actually is going to stop burning. Hmm. When the flames, or it's going to dramatically slow. When you don't see flames anymore, that means that the gases are gone. Now, the char will still continue to burn, but once you see that the gases are gone and the flames are really died down, squel- uh, squelch <laughs> um, I'm losing my, my mind here. Um, quench it. Okay. You know, just that's that's essentially what you're doing. If you quench it with water or you just really spread it out if you have the opportunity and it's not going to create a fire hazard. But um but the the uh, quenching will will then stop arrest the process. I guess you could and, do something too like basically extinguish using sifted sand too would probably be pretty pretty good yes. robbing oxygen and that that's gonna shut the, the whole thing mm-hmm. down. If you if you make char in a pit, you actually dig a hole in the ground and uh, you know, which is it's called an emu pit. They uh, make these in, in they use these in Hawaii a lot. Um, but you basically have a pit in the ground that is also like an inverted cone shape, and um, you can quench with soil. Just throw hmm. soil, wet vegetation over the top of it, anything to eliminate the oxygen, and um, and allow the the char to to cool. So it seems like by developing a skill, the technology becomes more and more simple. Like. You, there's a there's some pretty complex like set it and forget it type biochar making technology being built, but mm-hmm. this method is a lot more like the way my grandmother made bread, right? Mm-hmm. She had a, a recipe, but from that point on, like how long it was needed, how long it rose, whatever. There's guidelines, but you look at it and you know. How's it and feel? How's it look? How's exactly. It look? Exactly. So that mm-hmm. what we actually need are artisans that begin to develop their own skill set to do this, and they don't need to go out and spend five thousand dollars on a kiln, uh, oh, or, absolutely. Like that, yeah. or weld together some contract. You know, anybody can build it if you're a certified welder and have a whole bunch of material around and an oxyacetylene torch and a machine shop. Anybody can build it because I, I see a lot of that with open source stuff, and it's it's not that I'm opposed to. It. I think it's very very good. But I think it's like overly presented as easy because mm-hmm. I don't know about you, but I don't have an oxacetylene torch and I'm not yeah. a good welder and I don't have a machine shop. So when they say everybody can do it, I guess I'm not everybody, but I can mm-hmm. dig a hole, right? And, yeah. and stop lighting and learn to do this. 
Well, and we're discovering, too, now, um, and I um, hats off to Kelpie Wilson, who is a, a biochar expert in uh, southern Oregon. She's really been a real leader in this arena. You know, even though she's a mechanical engineer and has extensive knowledge on biochar, she's always experimenting with, with how do we do this simpler? How do we keep this simple? And And we were of the opinion for many years in the biochar community that cone kilns, um, were that were built that way because the sloping sides had something to do with the oxygen availability, and it does to a certain extent. But we've discovered you don't necessarily need the sloping sides. You can actually make char in in something as, as simple as a culvert. You know, that is standing well, up. You know, you 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 need to know what you're doing. I mean, you need sure. to have a heat shield. You need to have oxygen. You know, um, be able to get into the material and in certain quantities. So, so it's not. Quite that simple, but I mean the the materials of it that that you, one needs and the ways that <clears throat> excuse me the ways that one can make biochar are are really um, very accessible and very affordable. If you're going into a commercial biochar business, um, yeah, you probably do want a, a bigger piece of equipment after you know what you're doing. You know, um, Josiah Hunt from Pacific Biochar. I started his business in Hawaii just making char in emu pits. And he probably processed 150 tons through an emu pit, getting his business established. And now once it's it's gotten so big, he's over on the west coast of, of, uh, of the U.S. now. It's called Pacific Biochar. But um, so, you know, he's now he's using other equipment, but... You know, he's producing massive amounts of char for commercial purposes. So, you know... You don't need to go to the high-end equipment immediately. <clears throat> the the cone kiln, which you can get for um, hundred dollars or so. Yeah, um, help me out with that. I'm because I'm 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 looking. I didn't know what they were while mm-hmm. you mentioned them. I've been looking them up. They're very simple looking. It's basically a metal fire pit with angled sides. I mm-hmm. found pictures of them. And it may have a bottom. It may not. You know. Yeah. We, we, um, we've put some handles on on the uh, the newer newer models, and we think that the the cone kilns were actually just made like that because they were easier to stack. <laughs> they originated in Japan, where Japan has a lot of problems with bamboo coming into farmland, mm-hmm. and so they're constantly whacking back the bamboo. They need something to do with it. They they understood and knew about biochar, and so they use these little cone kilns, and they just whack bamboo into shorter lengths and and cook it in the cone kiln, and then put the the uh, biochar back into their soils. So you know it's it, but we think that now we we're starting to think that you know I think the the slope the sides were sloped so that you could stack a bunch of them together, whereas if they were all the same size and vertical slope, you couldn't stack them. I can buy that. I, I can buy that story. It makes sense to me. But where do I buy one of these things? Because for a hundred bucks, I want one. I want it now. <laughs> okay, great. Well, I actually I know the a, a a person who attended one of my biochar community conversations got excited and uh, started making cone kilns, and the company name is Best Cone Kiln. Okay. And they're in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. Cool. Coeur d'Alene. Near Coeur d'Alene. I even though an they, inordinate uh, amount of people up that way for some reason. I, <laughs> oh, we're we're all into biochar up here. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, anyhow, yeah, he, and he has a very innovative way of creating them, and he he ships them flat, and then you pop rivet them together, 
and they're very easy. I I hadn't I had to go out and buy a pop riveter, ten dollars, um, and I hadn't pop riveted since high school, but I was able to pick it up real quickly, and and uh, and so the shipping costs are reduced because he ships it flat, and you can get it with a bottom or without a bottom, and there's you know there's reasons we want want one or wouldn't want one, but um, so. That's that's a great place to get one, and I believe the price is about a hundred dollars. I think shipping is about twenty or something like that. But he he um, screws it to a, a a wooden frame and and flat, and uh, sends complete instructions and pop rivets and and it's a uh, just open it open it up and pop it together, and there you have it. Do they have a website or anything where you can order from? Um, yeah, they do. Let me uh, let me look that up. You can you email it to me when we're done with the interview, and I'll make sure, sure it goes on the I'll show notes because I'm trying to find it and can't, and I'll give him some business, and he might be a little surprised after this show about. <laughs> I'll warn him. Yeah, I'm just getting mine in first. That's all. Um, yeah, you get your order in first. Trisha. I mean, that's obviously a way we can make biochar at home. We can do it with just a pile. We can do it with a pit. We can do it with one of these these these, uh, these cones uh, cone kilns, which I. After seeing some of the really expensive, complicated ways to do this, I'm kind of excited to see that there can be simple ways to do it. And I like I understand what you're saying. Like if you go to major production, um, then yeah, this makes sense to go to these higher end tools. And uh, if you're going to make money, you make investments to make money. I, I get that. But a lot of us are running small homesteads, and this is a solution to a problem that's also a, a solution to another problem. So it's a solution to excess biomass. And it's a solution to the fact that, you know, we we, we need more fertility in our soil. So mm-hmm. that's just really awesome. And I, I was looking at uh, this Backyard Biochar website, and uh, they're not wasting oh, heat. They're cooking on the, on the cone kiln uh, while they're making the biochar. So they're getting dinner and biochar at the same time. Oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Pizza ovens. You're, that's uh, – that ha- I'm – Backyard Biochar is Kelpie, one of Kelpie Wilson's sites. And so it's a very reliable site. I encourage you to cool. you and your listeners to to check that out. It's uh, so it's, for it's people fun. Are lots, like this, lots of good stuff on it. For the people like this is great, but even what Jack and 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 Gloria are talking about is hard for me to do. I need to get biochar. If you're going to buy it, what are your kind of recommendations to make sure you're getting a good product or or what have you? Well, there are a number of of um, of tests that you can do at home which require no special equipment um, and the, the you know just looking at a bag of biochar you may not be really sure which way to go and you may not have a whole lot of choices online you have more choices there are a number of established companies that have been around a long time that have high quality product that I'm aware of um, I don't know if this is if yeah. you're no, you, go, go. that's okay okay yeah, well, uh, there's a company called Black Owl Biochar. They're in uh, northern, northwestern Washington. They are. Um, they also um, have been known under the name Biochar Supreme. They make a two different kind, pr- two primary kinds of biochar. One is already charged and and for for a soil amendment. The second is is for remediation, and it's made. Um, to have extremely high surface area and be extremely clean, and it's got some other things going on for it. They are those are two really high quality jars, and that's from Black Owl. There's a Soil Reef, which has a number of of outlets throughout the U.S. Pacific um, Biochar, 
New England biochar. Um, there's a um, we've got a, a website. I'll send you that link also, which has a list of producers in the Northwest. Um, there, I think I've got. Um, I'll send you some some sure. sources, some resources. But there are actually quite a few companies out there that that sell biochar, and the prices will be all over the board. The quantities will be all over the board. Smaller bags are fairly expensive, but you don't need a whole lot. That's that's one of the nice things about it. Is you you I don't put a prescribed amount of biochar in my soils. I fling out what I've got charged, what's run through my cattle or what's run through my sheep or my, you know, whatever animal is, is making my fertilizer for the day. Um, you know, so, um, but there are, there are a number of places to get it. It becomes trickier when you're looking for larger quantities, but, um, my, I'm always available to help direct people and connect, uh, producers and, and buyers. And so people can contact me directly and uh, and look for some help on getting something that's that's um, reasonably close and um, at a reasonable price. Very very cool. Um, I I uh, was wondering if you could just give people kind of at this point uh, how they can get more information and getting in touch with you and uh, your organization, your website. You bet. My website is biochar-us.org. And that's the U.S. Biochar Initiative. Um, and I'm a little slow on, on keeping my website up to date because I'm a one-person operation at this point. But um, the, we're, we've, we're just in the process of developing a really amazing resource list and dividing it by subject matter and then giving three to five references for every aspect of biochar that you might be interested in. So that should be posted within the next... Um, I'd say two to three weeks. But um, in the meantime, um, the International Biochar Initiative, which is biochar-international.org, is also an excellent uh, reference website with a lot of links and resources, including information about the U.S. They also are the repository of, to my knowledge, the only uh, comprehensive collection of biochar research I think they now have in excess of 2,800 um, biochar research re, uh, research results and um, articles. And so, if you had a question, you know, if you really wanted to specifically know, you know, I've got, for instance, I'm working with some people that have lead and arsenic in their soil, and it's mm. like, okay, what what does biochar do in relationship to lead and arsenic? By the way, it picks it up and holds it. Um, which is a very nice thing to do. Um, so that that's a, a great website to look at. Uh, Kelpie Wilson's website, Backyard Biochar, and also her she has a website called GreenYourHead.com. I think it's dot com, and um, and that's an excellent uh, resource as well. Um, there is a series of fun videos with Biochar Bob, who is kind of our our national spokesman. Um, for biochar, he's a wonderful guy, Bob Serino, uh, and he journeys to Hawaii and Mexico, Costa Rica. He he takes a number of trips and uh, and it's really fun, fast paced, and and you get to to actually hear from the farmers themselves who are using biochar, what they've discovered, how they use it, uh, what they like about it, what really works, how they make it, and it's 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 very. 
much non-technical. It's all about, um, you know, people like us. You know, we're, if you're busy being, um, being productive on your homestead, you're not going to take the time to build a lot of different biochar equipment and test it and, you know, and, and play with it. You know, it's like, it's fun, it's cool, but, you know, I really need to have some biochar right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I think and there's I, and, a lot of that. And I, I, even, I even put myself in that category. You would think that, you know, uh, I would be way into the the, the high-tech end of it. and and uh, But really, I'm about how do we get the biochar in the soil? And it's we're going to do it a lot more through individuals than we are through, you know, um, one one company, one group. And, you know, and that's a, another thing that, that I... One of the reasons that I'm so excited about biochar and I'm so excited about teaching people about biochar is that as soon as Monsanto, ADM, those other dudes, as soon as they realize what a magic elixir biochar can actually be to help improve soils, they're going to figure out some clever way to try to patent it or pretend that it's something that the normal person couldn't possibly do, make, or use without without the corporate intervention. And so what I want to see happen is that biochar is so well-known, ubiquitous, people have developed a friendly relationship uh, with biochar and a comfort with its manufacturing use to where it doesn't matter what the corporations try to say or do because we've already got it dialed in and are doing it ourselves. Thank you very much. Well, yeah, and it, it's hard to tell people they can't do something that they've done. Mm-hmm. Right? I exactly. mean, it's like, well, you, you, it's nice that you say I can't do that, but since I already did that, I don't really believe you because here's yeah. my thought. And I think, yeah. you know, the, the, the corporatocracy wants to control everything. Mm-hmm. And the Absolutely. only thing that prevents them from trying to control a lot of good things is they haven't figured out how good they are yet. Uh huh. Or they think that they're they're too homespun, or or um, you know, not jazzy enough, or don't have a big enough profit margin, or whatever. So as or they as, know they can't control it. I think that's the other thing too. Like oh, that that could be it. They and they could be they could be hip to that already with with biochar. I'm not sure. You know, although. I know that the Dow has been experimenting with biochars, and I know they made about 40 different varieties of biochar, different ways and different feedstocks, different temperatures, different time in residence. And I have been told uh, from a source that I, I have a very high degree of trust in that Dow has came across one formulation of biochar that, and I don't think that it's the only one, but they came across a biochar that they were able to intercept the uptake of mercury in aquatic species hmm. by 90%. Wow. So if we can keep mercury out of our waterways and out of our aquatic species, maybe we can start eating the fish that we catch again. Yeah. You want to talk about a, an environmental catastrophe. That is okay. beyond... I- yeah. I live I live within 10 minutes of Lake Roosevelt, which I say lake, um, it is actually a reservoir. It's what's backed up for 150 miles behind Grand Coulee Dam. It's a beautiful-looking reservoir, but it has so much pollution in it from Canadian mining and some at the U.S., but very high on the, the northern border here, 
It has so much pollution that it has guidelines at each of the boat launches that tell you how much you can eat of what kind of fish how many times a month. It's like if I need a guideline to tell me that I shouldn't eat that fish more than twice a month, then I don't think I should eat the fish at all. Yeah. So here we have, we have, you know, a, and this is just one small example, a huge reservoir that could feed hundreds of thousands of people high-quality fish protein, and you can't use it because there's too much pollution. Yeah, definitely. So, that's 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 what I, I, I see that is people not really getting the environmental catastrophes in front of us and following more of the, this is who you should vote for because of this, and none of them are doing a damn thing. And, and then you have toxic food being, that, that people think is, that if they don't pay attention to those signs or whatever, they think is, you know, like the best quality food. Um, we had places where I grew up in Pennsylvania where we had PCBs in the trout. And if you were standing where you catch this trout, there's no way in your head that you can understand how that toxin is even there because it looks like complete wilderness around you. Mm-hmm. And the, the the average person says this must be really great it must stuff. Be pristine. Yeah, it yeah. must be just beautiful. And yeah, I, I grew up in Pennsylvania, too. I was just north of Pittsburgh, actually. Okay. And, uh, and uh, yeah, so we... You know, we have this illusion that the food, that, that the FDA actually cares what goes into our bodies, <laughs> that, that the food that we purchase that is available for purchase in a grocery store is, is uh, suitable for human consumption. Uh, but let me tell you this. I was speaking with a, uh, a person who works in the compost industry in Washington um, at the regulatory level, they raise pigs because the guy's wife works in a grocery store and she can bring home produce surplus and and uh, feed it to the pigs. He told me that neither his pigs nor his chickens will eat the strawberries that come from that grocery store. <laughs> no, if a pig and a chicken a pig, aren't going to eat a it, chicken too. Yeah, really. Wow. You know, come on. Because I, I mean, I see what my pigs. My, I don't have pigs. I see what my chickens eat, and it's like, mm mm. You know, that is I, not what I eat. You know, there's very <laughs> little a chicken won't eat. Exactly, and they, you know, well, I won't even go into it. But it's uh, they're they're uh, they're definitely omnivores and and uh, not very discriminating. But you know, if a chicken turns down. A big fat strawberry. Um, well, and I can tell you for a fact, part of the reason chickens aren't on this property anymore is they do eat strawberries. Yes, they're exactly. happy to eat my strawberries. So that's oh, they will, they will. Yeah, you you give them access to anything juicy and nutrition, nutritious, even if it, again it's something that we wouldn't consider. Um, they'll they'll they will actively search it out. Absolutely. Sure. Sure. Well, again, one more time before we wrap up, your website is www.biochar-us.org. Well, Gloria, I appreciate you being with us today and sharing all this information. Uh, I've got a whole bunch of trimming some live oaks laying all around the property, and I know what to do with it. Uh, Absolutely. So thank you for that, and uh, I really appreciate you being with us here today. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thank you so much for all that you do for all of us. We, we rely very much on, on the knowledge and wisdom you bring us through your guests and through your own experience. So thanks a lot, Jack. 
Thank you again. And with that, this has been Jack Spearcup today along with Gloria Flora, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution.